What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today's going to be a fun episode. We're joined by Tara Robertson, head of demand generation at Chili Piper. Tara got her start in a communications role at Polar Mobile and later transitioned to focusing on inbound marketing at Scribble Life, a live blogging platform based in Toronto. Tara then made the move to MarTech, joining the popular content experience platform Uberflip as demand gen manager, where she spent nearly three years and worked her way up to director of revenue marketing. She later transitioned to senior manager of demand gen role at Top Hat, a higher ed learning platform. And for the last two years, she's been at Chili Piper, a meeting automation platform for for demand gen teams, where she started as demand gen manager and has recently been promoted to head of demand gen. At Chili Piper, she's also the host of the acclaimed Demand Gen Chat podcast, where she's interviewed prominent guests from companies like LinkedIn, Sixth Sense, Refine Labs, and more. Tara, thanks so much for being on the show. This is uh, over a year in the making uh, after Camille called you out in uh, episode number 60. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. I'm a huge fan of Camille. I love to spar with him on Twitter sometimes, so <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, I love the B2B chat AMA that uh, he set up for you. Uh, it, it definitely spurred uh, the the inspiration for a lot of questions here. But um, yeah, maybe we can start off with a bit of a tough question. So I'm curious your take. Um, I, I think it's an important topic to dispel. Uh, if you look at your resume on paper, you went from director level at Uberflip to senior manager at Top Hat and then to manager at Chili Piper. Too many times, like some of the folks I mentor and chat to uh, chat with, like are hesitant to get out of an unhappy situation because their best options are at like lower seniority than their current roles. So they just like they stick it out. They like remain unhappy and they keep trying to like find something that's like eye level in terms of seniority for their next gig. What words of encouragement do you have for some of these folks when it comes to just like ignoring job titles, especially early in their careers, instead of prioritizing their happiness and potential career growth? Yeah, I think I totally understand the chasing job titles, chasing responsibilities. I've been there. I mean, if you look at my resume at Uberflip, that was kind of what I was doing there is I was just kind of jumping pretty quickly. I think every six months or so I got promoted there. So I was really used nice. to that. Um, but you really have to think about what you prioritize as an individual. And you can tell by my titles, I've done a bunch of different things. And often the title doesn't really match what you actually do day to day. So I think you said my first role was in communications, but I really, I answered the phones. I booked our CEO's travel. And then I also like set up our first Twitter account. So it was technically <laughs> a communications role, but it really was kind of whatever they needed. And I think that is how I've been able to jump around so much is just kind of doing what was needed at the time. But I think for a lot of people, they chase that manager role and then they end up not really liking it or not being good at it. And that, I know in my experience, my last role when I was at Top Hat, I basically ended up as kind of like a middle manager. And I found that fulfilling in person. But as soon as we went remote, just being in one-on-ones, being in meetings all day and not actually producing anything, I found it super, just honestly, unmotivating. It wasn't for me. Um, so that was really one of my motivations to <laughs> look for something new. But I know that can be tough if you haven't had that manager role yet and you're really itching for it, right? So if it's something you really want to try, I would say, yeah, apply, try, go for it. But I've just found that honestly, titles don't mean that much. And I've been pretty fortunate that I haven't had to take a pay cut in any of my jumps, even though it might look on paper like I'm jumping kind of up and down. Nice. I've really just been 
going for who I want to work with, who I want to learn from, and then going from there versus focusing on that title. Love it. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I, I think something to like kind of an interesting follow-up question is like the pathways between being a people manager and being an individual contributor. Something we've talked about a lot on the show, but I'm wondering your take. Like for people, marketers starting out thinking, I, you know, I've got a 25, 30 year career in marketing, but I want to be an individual contributor. Like talk to us like as a you know more senior person in marketing, like how viable is that pathway for getting the same types of credit, rewards, and obviously the monetary gain as well? <laughs> Yeah. I think again, it comes back to what motivates you. I mean, if monetary is literally all you care about, then going that people manager route is probably the quickest way to do that, honestly. Um, but if you want to be learning new things and actually creating and doing things yourself, being creative in marketing, I personally would say to think outside the box and not go down that people manager route. Mm -hmm. It also just fluctuates, right? I mean, technically I'm in a people manager role now, but I have to do so much myself because our home marketing team is eight people. So stuff just has to get done. It's very different structurally, right? So yeah, I think you have to think about what do you actually enjoy day-to-day -day versus I want my resume to look a certain way um, and really experiment with that. Yeah, that's great advice. Stylizing your resume based on a whole bunch of job titles and responsibilities on paper looks like one thing, but you mm -hmm. know, as you develop in your career, you, you get jobs through your network and through people who've worked with you and know what you bring to the table. You did say something interesting, which leads me to my next question. Um, in the last season of the Demand Gen Chat podcast, you took over as host. So we we're talking about wearing many hats. Uh, you know, <laughs> in taking over this this podcast, it's already an existing podcast, jumping in as a co-host. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience of joining the cast and how you leveled up the show. Yeah. So I would say I first took it over, um, when, so Kaylee, who was running it, who was my manager at the time, love working with Kaylee. She's awesome. Um, but she did a really amazing job of kind of bringing this podcast back from the dead. So it had existed before, but it had been, I want to say two or three years in between that first season and when she took it over. And when she took it over, we also had, Nolan, who's our head of video and creative. So they just added so much extra polish and really started to grow the show and grow that momentum. So when Kaylee left, it wasn't a given that we would continue with the podcast, but I had seen all the metrics. Part of my job when I was reporting to her was promoting the podcast and getting it featured in different places. And I saw the reception from that on LinkedIn, saw the growth. Um, so I knew that we couldn't just let it go and keep it stale. It was one of the things we were doing that people were really loving and we were getting great feedback on. So it just seemed obvious to me that we had to keep doing it. And at the time, um, the DG team literally was just me. So it was kind of, if we're going to have a Demand Gen podcast, it was obvious who should take it over because <laughs> there's literally just me. Um, and it just didn't feel authentic to me to have someone like a co-founder or someone who's not a like day-to-day -day marketer jump in and take that on. But we did discuss that too. Um, and sorry, I'm trying to remember the second part of your question. How did you level it up? Like, because uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, like I, I read about like how you you took it to like a, another level. Like uh, some of the guests are getting on now, or I would say like a bit more prestigious than than some of the earlier guests. Like I did a bit of research on like the former yeah. pieces of the show and and what it looks now, and like, yeah, it just feels like a, a different show entirely. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, so the honestly, the first season I did, so I. I'm almost wrapping up the second now, but the first season I did, I was just worried about messing it up. So I didn't really <laughs> change the format much. I pretty much studied the format that Kaylee had done and had really similar questions. I didn't want to stray too far from that because people loved it. Um, but then when we 
had time to step back before doing what we're calling our um, fourth season now, the one that's out right now. Um, we just talked about different ways we could add more polish. So we did things like I wrote a little script for Nolan to record an outro that sounded a little bit more professional. I, instead of doing a really kind of quick, awkward intro at the beginning of the episode that I was doing before, I now, after I record, I take a minute and think about what we just talked about. And then I record that intro. So it's a little bit more context right up front. Um, so really just having more, I guess, polish, yeah, is kind of what we've focused on. Um, and then at the same time, our producer Nolan has spent a ton of time experimenting with different AI tools. So we're able to do much more post-production, which has been really cool. So in the past, he was manually making shorts for YouTube, making shorts for TikTok, but obviously that can be super time consuming. So sometimes it just wouldn't happen. He would just have other too much on his plate. Um, but now he's using some really cool AI tools. Opus is one. Um, and that just helps take some of the manual work off his plate so that we're always creating more content out of the episodes that we have. Very cool. Yeah. Like, uh, obviously running our own podcast, I feel like there's, there's a long list of questions, uh, that, that we could ask like selfishly to, <laughs> to learn a bit more and, uh, share notes and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, for the audience, uh, I know that like, uh, there's another channel that, uh, from a demand gen perspective, Chili Piper is, is also carving out and, and, and doing some cool stuff on, um, you have a newsletter that you call the sauce. Uh, it has seen phenomenal growth. I've read about it in a couple of different places, uh, kind of serves as another content distribution channel for, for the company. Uh, I love that. Like it kind of focuses on delivering a variety of content rather than just trying to drive sales. Like I feel like most, uh, B2B newsletters are just trying to like, uh, nurture like top of funnel leads into finally converting there but you're kind of pulling from marketing teams and, and partners and customers and content that you find on social that that you think is kind of interesting there um but you've you've written about like uh, the way that you've been able to increase the subscriber base for the newsletter has been uh utilizing signups uh on your own blog but also linkedin and paid placements in similar newsletters uh, i'd love for you to just like unpack that a little bit like the story of the growth and maybe some of the challenges that you've faced in maintaining some of the content quality as the subscriber base uh, grew over time. Yeah, I would love to take credit for the name. I think it's perfect. <laughs> but it already <laughs> existed before I was here, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so on the growth side, we experimented with a bunch of things. Um, this is, again, when I had the luxury of having more than one demand gen person on the team. So I was really passionate about the newsletter and the podcast. I just saw those as things that we were doing that were different than other people in the space. So that was one of my priorities when I first joined was growing both our listener base for the podcast and obviously our subscriber base for the newsletter. Um, so we did a bunch of things. You did mention the newsletters already. That was one channel that was surprising to me, not just in the quality of subscribers, but just the cost. I We were able to get the cost per subscriber down pretty close to Facebook, which was surprising to me. Um, and if you've done lead forms on Facebook, you know, the quality is all over the map and not the best. So we quickly paused the lead forms on Facebook, but I didn't think we'd ever be able to come close to the cost per lead. So that was a really cool experiment that we were able to do. Um, and then we also experiment a lot with, you mentioned that the content itself isn't driving sales, but what we do instead is we use that as essentially a retargeting audience and mm. we were able to drive some direct sales from that. So that's how I'm able to keep the newsletter very nicely packaged content, not a sales pitch that's kind of hidden in a newsletter. Um, so that's how I'm able to justify it internally. But um, one of the mistakes I made when I first took it over was 
I get, I mentioned I'm a huge fan of newsletters and I thought that we were doing a really good job with ours. So I really wanted to double down on it. So one of the first tests I did was sending it twice a month instead of the once a month that we had been doing. And really quickly, I realized that was a mistake, Um, (laughs) partly because we had promised people when they signed up that we'd only email them once a month. So it was a little bit of a bait and switch, but um, it also just really, we lost quite a few subscribers doing that test, which was unfortunate. I thought it was just worth doing anyway, but um, I wish I had done it kind of a scaled back test of picking like a few hundred subscribers out and seeing how that response would be instead of just doing it to everyone. So that was a kind of a miss early on. Um, but our engagement rates were just so good on the monthly. I thought it could be even better doing more and that's wrong, but it happens. You, you, we've talked about two kind of interesting examples, um, of, of marketing activities that could fit within the demand gen puzzle, right? Like demand mm-hmm. gen's huge. It could be anything falls under demand gen, depending mm-hmm. on the objectives of what you're trying to do. But I think Traditionally, a lot of people think when they think demand gen programs that are, you know, laser focused on MQLs, which we'll talk a little bit about MQLs later on. But I think both of these are nice kind of cool experiments, right? And you've talked a little bit about like the AI experimentation that's happening in the podcast, Mm -hmm. some of the experiments that you're doing uh, with the newsletter. You've also recently talked about like the the lack of boldness in B2B marketing campaigns. There's a tweet out where you talked about like, can we stop doing 2018 HubSpot? As good as 2018 HubSpot was, it's, it, things have changed quite quite a bit. <laughs> Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what you've learned from you know doing these kind of more uh, top of funnel kind of content plays for your demand gen and the tooling that you can kind of play with and the freedom that you have there. And then some of the examples of, you know, why do marketers in B2B need to be more bold? And then maybe some examples of what you think would be good examples of bold bold uh, B2B marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think first I'll just say I'm really fortunate to work with co-founders that are open to trying things. I know not every marketer is in that situation, so they kind of have to play it safe. So I don't want to be giving them a hard time. I know how that could be. Um, <laughs> so I'm like I said, I'm lucky. But I think kind of going back to what we were saying earlier about the newsletter being like for a lot of companies, it's basically just their email nurture program. I think that's the like old school HubSpot way of bringing in customers, which like we can get into it when we talk about MQLs, mm-hmm. but I personally have never bought anything that way. So I don't know that it works for anyone else. I, I'm sure people say it works for them, but it's never worked on me. So I just always try to think of like, how do I personally actually buy things in MarTech and try to apply that to our marketing. So I've never been like tricked into clicking something and then a sales rep calls me and then I'm automatically sold. That's just never worked. So try to stay away from that playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about recent kind of out of the box campaigns, I'm trying to think of something timely. Um, one thing that I've been seeing a lot that we're, ex- we're actually experimenting with this fall, it'll be af- before this comes out. So in September, um, but we're doing some fun stuff at Inbound Saster and possibly Dreamforce. I'm on the fence about that because Dreamforce is so big. So we're still talking about it (laughs) internally. So I'm not sure if that'll exist or not. Um, But instead of doing the traditional trade booth thing, we're going to be experimenting with some basically a like less messy version of graffiti is what I'll call it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be outside and around the trade shows and yeah, we're hoping to really get some good social uptick from that. But again, super top of funnel. We're not expecting mm-hmm. anyone to come to our website and book a demo because they saw some graffiti on the side of us. Um, but we're hoping to just get some buzz around social on that. And then on my end, how I can turn that into a demand gen play is actually using the 
video clips and pictures we get kind of on the ground from our so from our sales team that's there mm -hmm. and turning that into ads and showing people like hey this is what we're doing and here's how we handle events at chili piper we are very against the like forcing people to talk to you in a sale meeting room at a trade show because we know that that usually doesn't go well uh -huh. so we tend to spend our budget on things like happy hours parties really mm -hmm. more of the stuff that people actually want to attend versus kind of tricking someone into being in a <laughs> Um, in a room with you at, looking at a demo. So I think it'll be fun to share what's working for us. And hopefully most of that content will be out by the time this episode comes out. Thanks. Yeah, super cool. We we usually turn the, uh, we we play around with some AI tools uh, ourselves on the podcast and we like mm. we turn the transcript into a blog post. And so like hopefully yeah. by the time uh, this launches, we'll have uh, some nice accompanying images of uh, uh, like so. spicy yeah. graffiti uh, <laughs> yeah. from, from some events there to add. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. I think that's a super neat idea. And what some of the cool kids might be calling a bit more like guerrilla marketing, right? Like <laughs> I was trying not to say that because <laughs> I feel like people say that to mean so many things. I was like, how can I describe this without saying guerrilla marketing? But that's yeah. just, that's the idea. Yeah. And then kind of on the same vein, I mean, since you said spicy, I feel like our hot sauce is one of those things that seems mm -hmm. like kind of silly and like technically anyone could send you hot sauce, but the, because the way that we have the bottle branded, we have like fun slogans on it. We get, we still get pictures tagged on LinkedIn, like mm -hmm. almost daily of that, which is such a simple thing, but it just has that like quick connection to our brand. So I think mm -hmm. it's really fun when B2B brands are able to think of something like that. That's it's outside the box, but it still relates back to either your name or what you do in some can be a loose way, but in some way for people. Yeah, definitely. For folks that aren't like in the B2B space, like they would see that marketing play and just be like, oh, this is clearly a, a BSE company and like they're they're selling hot sauce and like mm -hmm. diving in and just be like, what? Like this is B2B and like they're doing this mm -hmm. on the side for awareness. Like, yeah, I think it, it's super cool. I've seen the the hot sauces uh, pop around social myself. Um, but I want to ask you a question about like, uh, like, how do you come up with some of those ideas? Like I Early in my career, like I was in the interesting role of marketing to other marketers and, you know, very similar marketers to myself. I was almost our ICP, like JT was the same. We were both at, at Clipfolio. At Chili Piper, mm -hmm. like this is also pretty much the case for you as well, right? Like how how different is it to have a gig where you represent the ICP versus like some of your previous roles where you had to spend a bit more time maybe getting to know the user, like building that empathy, like getting into their shoes. Um, and like, how do you tackle some of the potential biases that come into play there just because you're the ICP and you're a demand gen marketer and you're selling to other demand gen marketers? Naturally, sometimes you just like opt for like going with your personal preferences, although mm -hmm. knowing that like sometimes that might be a generalization and might not apply to like your your entire uh, target market or, or ICP. But yeah, curious your, your take there and how that impacts with you like coming up with some of those uh, cool guerrilla marketing ideas. Yeah, I think on the complete opposite spectrum of that, when I was at Top Hat, this is something I really struggled with as a mm -hmm. marketer. So we were selling to professors, which yeah. if you know any professors, they're they're basically, they have a job for life if you're a professor, right? So it's very different than marketers that are constantly like fighting for credit, fighting for attribution, fighting. Mm. It's so different. So getting into that mindset, I really struggled with. <laughs> so I was happy to come back to MarTech where I feel like I just have so much more in common with our ICP, which is helpful. I think one thing that I've, and you mentioned something that I think you said things that apply to all of your ICP. I I don't know if I believe that that's a thing personally in my experience I think you have to kind of 
figure out something that will make some of your ICP super excited Mm -hmm. and some other people might not care. But I think personally, at least in my experience, that's been better than everyone being like, okay, I get it. Like, that's fine. Or like, that's cool. But if you can get a couple people that are really excited enough to say, take a picture and post it on social, then I think you have something there and that's something you can build some momentum off of. So when we have brainstorms as a team, obviously over Zoom, it's not as fun as it is in person. Um, but that's usually where the best ideas come from is we'll use a tool um, like Figma or something simple. And we just have post-it notes. We all write our ideas and then come back as a team and talk about them. And usually the ones that if the group of 10 or so of us are really all excited about one idea, then that's the direction we go. And that's where things like the graffiti idea came from. In the past, we made um, custom Pokemon cards for our cab members. That was also just from a random team brainstorm. So it's usually in those settings that I feel like people people just need to feel comfortable enough to throw out any idea and not mm-hmm. feel embarrassed. Because <laughs> Sometimes you think like, oh, I don't know if everyone loves Pokemon, but the people that do <laughs> are super jazzed about it. So that's kind of how we approach it. Super cool. I like that. Like just doubling down on what you said there. Like, so basically worry less about like trying to find ideas that would be appealing to the majority of people in your ICP. And instead, like try to find cool, unique, creative ideas that might not resonate with everyone, but like will get some folks like really excited as opposed to doing something that's a bit more vanilla that like everyone just be like, "Eh, okay, like kind of cool. Yeah, I, I like that take. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw, but Audience Plus put out a video maybe two weeks ago now, um, but they were doing basically like they're redoing emo songs to be about marketing. And <laughs> it's like, it's right up my alley. So I was super excited. <laughs> but it's one of those things where the comments were just people were going crazy for it. And maybe they would have got broader reach if they did like, I don't know, a Taylor Swift song or something. But the emo like millennial crowd was just going nuts over it. So I think that was super smart. And Again, not everyone has the luxury of being able to do these out-of-the-box things, but I think when you're selling to marketers, you sort of have to because there's just so much noise and everyone's trying to be creative, so we want to like one-up each other in that mm-hmm. way. I, I think one of the things that I'm pulling out of the conversation as well, and it's kind of subtle, so I want to pull it out and make sure that for our listeners, maybe I'm I'm seeing something, but like what you're talking about here from a demand gen perspective is pretty high level stuff, right? Like bold brand plays, investments in things that don't necessarily have a direct line to clicks and metrics that we always think about when we think about like, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned attribution. I do think like we talked about, you also mentioned a little bit about webinars being on the way out. So I see this like, interesting kind of, I don't know, peak, you could say, is if you've got your foundations right, you can build up towards doing really cool stuff that matches your persona, matches your ICP, hits that kind of inflection point where people are so going on social. But I think there's that subtle other piece of your product positioning has got to be really solid. You have to know exactly who you are in the marketplace, your competitors, uh, how you fit in the marketplace, who and within certain organizations within the personas are doing that. So there's a lot of groundwork that goes into being able to execute these campaigns at such a high level. Like, I guess my takeaway is some of this is how could what advice would you give to folks who are you know entering in? They've got willing co-founders and and tons of investment from the top but they just don't have everything in place yet. Like what would be the first steps to be able to be in your shoes in three years? Yeah, that's a great point. I think if I was joining a brand new marketing team today, a lot of this would be really tough to pull off Mm -hmm. and tough to get approval on, obviously. (laughs) Um, I think one piece that's really important that a lot of people, at least 
a lot of people I talk to discount is the operation side of things. So I was super lucky that when I joined Chili Piper, we had a strong RevOps manager who had really taken care of a lot of the, I guess, behind the scenes things that just need to happen so that when a lead comes in, it goes to the right place. And we're not constantly trying to fix things. We're not testing our forms all the time. If you have that wrong and your people are filling out your forms, they're ending up in a dead end. They're not going anywhere. I think you can really run into trouble there. If you do a big brand campaign and people come to your website and your, your forms don't work, or you can't even figure out what to do next, that's a huge miss. Um, and on the positioning side, I think honestly, it's always a work in progress for us. So I wouldn't say that we've completely nailed that either. We, I have had people on LinkedIn message me asking if we make hot sauce or what we do, which is mm-hmm. funny. Um, but then at the same time, I have people who love the brand and know what we do and are posting about our hot sauce on social and kind mm-hmm. of that's kind of a self-fulfilling thing. Um, so I think one thing that is a focus for us this year is actually getting deeper on the messaging piece and fixing that up a little bit. So I wouldn't say that we've completely nailed that. Mm-hmm. The competitive landscape for us has been changing a ton. When we started making B2B lead routing software, it was there wasn't really any other option, honestly. So we were really new in the game and people were like, what is that? Why do I need that? And now it's really table stakes, right? If you mm-hmm. have a marketing team or a sales team. So I think now people know they need it. And now we're, we're all of a sudden competing with other tools that we weren't before. So that's been definitely a challenge for us. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fair point. I like the the question, JD, is like, yeah, oftentimes like you can be as creative as you want to at the top of the mm-hmm. funnel on, on marketing and in, in demand gen. But if you don't have the product marketing down the messaging yeah. and like the, the well-oiled uh, funnel, so to speak mm-hmm. to like do something with like some of the folks that get at the top of the funnel, like uh, what are you really doing at the top there? But I like the, the stuff you mentioned Tara about like, you're, you're not just doing like a play at the top of the funnel to generate awareness and buzz like the graffiti in like events you're also turning those images from social and mm-hmm. reposting those on ads. And similarly with the newsletter, you're not just doing a newsletter for the good of like the content. You're also retargeting some of the subscribers and you're, you know, not always able to tie revenue with some of those ideas, but I, I like the creative ways you've been able to still find a way to, to direct uh, or see a direct line to, to revenue with some of the additional uh, paid social mm-hmm. stuff that, that you're doing on top of it. Um, but yeah, I want to, I want to like, uh, maybe like go full circle a little bit here. And as we mentioned in the intro in, in episode number 60 last year, Camille Rexton, uh, he called you out and, uh, we asked him about uh, a question about the topic of, of dark social, uh, dark social is like a, a nice big buzzword that folks like to, to throw around these days. And I'm still seeing it pop up all the time on, on LinkedIn. Um, but he said that you wouldn't agree with his take. Uh, so I'll remind you of his take and would love to give you the opportunity to, to tell your side of this story. So Camille said, dark social is essentially word of mouth in the digital age. It's not new. Uh, many marketers latch on to buzzwords to differentiate or promote themselves, but the core job remains the same, create value and generate revenue for businesses. We shouldn't be swayed by terms like dark funnel or dark social. What matters is understanding the market, effective positioning, and reaching a target audience at the right time. The existing demand is there. It's about capturing it effectively. Okay. Where should I start? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've had this chat with him before, so it's funny. I Okay. First, I'll say I don't think anyone should be 
seeing these buzzwords on social and then changing their whole marketing strategy yeah. around it. I yeah. think that's a Fair. huge mistake. So I'll just say that right <laughs> up front. I don't personally know anyone that has done that, but I'm sure it's happened. Um, I think I agree with him that the concept of call it word of mouth, dark social, whatever you want to call it, isn't brand new. People have been buying things through word of mouth since before any of us were born, honestly, for years and years. Um, but I think what's different now with B2B is that a lot of marketers like to think that they can measure every single touch point. And I personally don't think that's true, just from my own experience. A lot of attribution software might tell you they can. I just don't personally buy it. I think I mentioned earlier that I've never bought anything through a nurture stream. I've never bought anything from a Google ad either, for example. But if I hear about you and then I maybe Google you later, I might click on your Google ad. That doesn't mean your SEM or your SEM is like the best SEM that anyone's ever run. It just means you got my attention and then I went and looked you up and you happened to be bidding above these other guys. And then I clicked on your ad. So, um, so I personally just don't buy that. You can t measure every single thing. And I think that's, at least from my perspective, where this whole idea of dark social came from is that, yeah, you can give your happy customers and your influencers UTM links and ask them to post that for you. In my experience, they usually won't because it doesn't feel very authentic to be in Slack with like, here's my UTM link for this thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can try to measure that, but I don't really think that most of us can. So it's just going to be one of those channels that you kind of have to keep an eye on, try to be in these communities, try to be where you can, where your customers are hanging out. I know we're talking a ton about Slack communities and LinkedIn, but obviously that's very specific to B2B mm -hmm. marketers. If your audience is somewhere else, you should have of someone in those channels too. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, we've become so obsessed with tracking things that I worried that, I think it's definitely changed in the last couple of years, but in say 2020, maybe 2019, a lot of marketing teams just didn't have anyone focused on communities and influencers because it wasn't trackable. And I think that was a huge miss. So we've really seen kind of a revival of that. Yeah, I think this is a pretty pretty interesting and, and nuanced conversation, right? Like as marketers, particularly in the digital age, we've come accustomed to measuring everything because everything appears to be measurable. But I think this the the mm -hmm. whole dark funnel, dark social, just an awareness that, oh yeah, marketing isn't actually all online and on, like a ton of it happens word of mouth and building out those mm -hmm. experiences. Which kind of brings us into the next question around MQLs. I know you have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with MQLs. I think that a lot of demand gen folks, I know I would be in that category as well. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about a couple interesting things. Like one thing we kind of keeps coming up in my mind in our discussion as a topic is this disconnect between almost like the marketer's intuition. So what we know about personas, what we know about a product brand or positioning and our future aspirations, and then what we know about like the persona itself and being able to make that mm -hmm. connection. So like personally, in my career, I've always seen MQLs as being like a very customized, you know, definition of quality. Like are marketers bringing in good quality? Yes, no. It's kind of like a, a Boolean, right? True, false. But I think a lot of teams take the MQL too far or don't take it far enough or get it wrong in the definition stage, or maybe shouldn't even use an MQL defini definition or even use like MQLs in their in their business. I'm sure, you know, at Chili Piper, you guys work with tons of different teams, have seen mm -hmm. every different setup. What do you think where the state of the MQL is at, you know, 2023, the year of our Lord? <laughs> uh, I hate to say it depends because I feel like that's such a cop-out, but I feel like it really depends on the size of your, like, first of all, who you're going after, but also just the setup of your marketing and sales mm -hmm. org. So 
in pastorals, I've been really lucky and had big marketing teams. We've had multiple people in marketing ops. So we would spend hours debating like, what is an MQL? What should the lead score increase by if they visit this page? And at the time that felt like a good use of time, but looking back, I really, it makes me cringe a little bit because we could have just been going and getting more leads. Like we didn't have to be, I mean, maybe the ops team should have been doing that, but I probably didn't need to be in the room. So that's personally, I think, yeah, it depends on your setup for us. We aren't too concerned about MQLs. If someone raises their hand to book a demo, we're all over it. We want to make sure that they are connected with the right rep right away. But before that, we don't really measure too much in terms of what you would traditionally call an MQL. Mm -hmm. We just, I just don't think it's going to set you up for success with sales if you're constantly bickering about what's Mm -hmm. a good lead, what's a bad lead. This lead attended a webinar, this one didn't, but this one's job title is better. I just Mm -hmm. think it's it's not really, there's no winning there. So (laughs) we personally just focus on which accounts our outbound team should be going after, which is a whole separate conversation on outbound. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the inbound side, if they book a demo, we just pass them right over to the AE team and we don't touch the SDRs at all. So that's a very simplified setup. A lot of companies need a more complex setup than we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to mess with your setup if it works for you. (laughs) Um, But for us, we've just found that keeping it super simple has saved a ton of time, not just in like our own meetings and mm-hmm. getting things done, but just for the, it's a better experience for the leads too, because they raise their hand when they're ready. If you're a yeah. perfect fit account for us, then you're probably going to hear from our outbound team and we don't need to be tricking you into going through a nurture cadence on the marketing side. What you said about like sitting down and hammering out the lead scoring, obsessing yeah. about like two point <laughs> different differences really resonates with me, but like, and, and as well, what you, what you said resonates with me around like behavior often is the most powerful indicator around purchase behavior and an inbound and search engine optimization, which is my realm. Intent is almost as a part of the the package deal of bringing people in. However, like I'm curious just to kind of further follow up, like there's always a lead quality threshold, right? Like and going through the forcing function of like a scoring thing, it can feel a little bit abstract, but sometimes it's a nice forcing function to be like, does my persona match to data points and do my data points match to to quality? And then can I measure that going forward? And I think what we're discussing is teams who follow that as our true north purely not going to have great mm-hmm. times, but using your sales team as like a great filter and mechanism. Hey, is sales overwhelmed? Is sales like what they're seeing? And codifying that in some kind of data. Um, maybe talk a little bit about like how you guys look at lead quality or maybe some advice for our listeners around thinking about lead quality without getting too attached on the MQL uh, funnel. <laughs> Yeah. So I, we actually start further up funnel than I think a lot of companies where we start by scoring accounts before we go outbound. So we, it's pretty new for us in the last few months, we've shifted to this model, but instead of focusing on scoring leads and lead quality, we focus on account quality and then we focus our marketing efforts around that as well. So on the paid ad side, my focus on our budget other than search, obviously, which you can't really control too much. But on social, I'm focusing the budget on those accounts that we've already decided with sales are a good target. Um, So we're not spinning our wheels on every marketer on LinkedIn, because it's Mm -hmm. just obviously not a great use of limited budget. Um, And then on the outbound side, they're going after those same accounts, but we're not really scoring leads as they come in at Chili Piper. So we're basically just saying, here's our retargeting audiences. We're going to go after these folks that we want to see our customer stories. We want them to see different ways people are using us in our use cases, but we're not going to, if someone clicks on our ad, we're not going to go to sales and run to them and say like, Hey, call this person right now, because if they're on that account list, they're going to be called by sales anyway. 
So it's kind of removing that lead scoring step altogether. Yeah, I love it. I yeah, like like JT, I've definitely been in a lot of those conversations myself on like what is what is an MQL, what is an SQL, how do we define it? What is the quality <laughs> threshold? I felt like the definition was changing very often too. Like it was a fluid definition. But like you're like looking back on a lot of those conversations, like it, it feels pretty silly. And I'm curious to ask you, like, um, have you like explored at Jelly Piper with uh, AI tools that take over some of the the lead scoring pieces of that? Like uh, it, some of these companies have been around for a long time, like automated lead scorings, like Mixpanel has like this black box mm-hmm. that they do. There's um, a couple of other uh, vendors in the space that uh, like Mad Kudu has been around for a while. Like they've gotten a bit more affordable over the years, but like I remember like just wanting to play with it uh, in, in earlier startups and just being not 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 an, an approachable uh, price tag at all. But there's way more of, the, of those tools now that are basically just like looking at historical data of your users, trying to like all the way back to like anonymous footprints, like what are they doing on the site? What path did they take to land to certain conversions? And then like, did they convert and did they not convert? And then comparing like successful customers with non-successful customers and then just like reverse engineering that and like giving the same type of uh, attention to people that are going down similar paths or are having like similar interactions there. But yeah, just curious if you if you explored with uh, some of those like automated lead scoring tools uh, in the past. Yeah, in the past, I've looked into a bunch. Usually budget was an issue. A lot of them are really (laughs) up there. Um, What we're doing now actually is, yeah, instead of starting with leads, we're starting with accounts. So we're using Mm -hmm. a tool called GoodFit to do exactly what you said, but at an account level. So Mm -hmm. we're there telling, we're putting in, here's our best customers. Here's the ones that we think have the most potential for growth. What do they have in common? And working with their tool on how we can identify those things that we might not have thought of. Um, and then going after those accounts. So we're not there yet on the lead front. We're still experimenting on the accounts, but I could see it going down that path for sure in the future. We just want to prove out this account-based model first. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Hopefully, like uh, with the uh, the explosion of AI tools, like some of these become uh, a bit more affordable. Um, when I was at like an enterprise company, I was at WordPress.com, and we had like an internal team building some of these like propensity models, so we didn't have to like try to outsource it. And it was all a discussion of like how like effective were they at actually like making those predictions, and then how do we like operationalize those models and and use them within our marketing, and how does that really apply to like new customers because we're doing new campaigns all the time and it's bringing in different types of folks and can we really apply historical context to new people that are coming in from new channels or like new messaging or, or new campaigns so yeah it, it'll be interesting to to follow some of these tools around but um, I know we're, we're getting close on time. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, a data stack on, on the podcast. We've been super deep on uh, the customer data platform debate around like package CDPs and composable CDPs. And in your uh, <clears throat> your B2B chat on Twitter, you mentioned that like you rely on your data team at Chili Piper when it comes to this idea of like data pipelines and data stack and that your mm-hmm. real focus is kind of digesting the dashboards that it, are kind of the output of a, a lot of the work that your data team is doing. Um, what does the collaboration between marketing and data teams look like at Chili Piper? And what advice do you have for teams that are just starting uh, this idea of like working closer with their data teams? 
Yeah, I think I'll just say quickly to the last question, I've gone down the road of working with a data team to build lead scoring in-house before, and it was it was a never-ending project, honestly. <laughs> I Unless you have a huge team dedicated to it, I would not recommend, um, especially now with, again, AI tool is probably going to decrease the cost of a lot of these tools, so fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the way that we work with our data and ops team today, I'm it's kind of always changing, most things here are changing pretty quickly, but um, essentially what we work with them on is building dashboards for us that the whole marketing team can digest without having to go into all of our data tools. So we use Sigma today to basically house all of those dashboards. And that's kind of the source of truth for all of our reporting. So when I have to put slides together for an all hands presentation or when we do our board deck, that kind of stuff, it's all coming from the same place, which seems very basic, but a lot of teams I've been on sales pulls from Salesforce and marketing pulls from HubSpot. And yeah. and honestly, we were doing that up until probably a year ago. So having everyone reporting out of one central place makes a huge difference. And it saves so much time when it comes time to do like board slides and that kind of stuff. So that's been huge. Um, but I will say just on the advice side, when you bring on a data team, if they're not pre-existing to you, that setting that foundation takes much longer than you would think, at least that I thought. Um, so having a centralized team, it's a huge benefit once you get that off the ground. But we were think I don't know where we got this idea as a marketing team, but we were like, oh, we have a data team. We'll have a dashboard in, I don't know, a week and everything will be great. Um, but there's so many conversations that have to happen behind the scenes of like, again, to your point on the lead funnel, like what is an SQL? What is a sales accepted lead? What is an opportunity? What And really defining everything. And data teams are amazing at poking holes in the existing logic and saying like, well, you told me this, but when I go over to the sales team, they tell me this other thing. Mm-hmm. So that conversation takes so much longer than you'd expect. So I would just be patient at the beginning because once that groundwork is set, then you can really start to work together. And like I said, it's it's such a time saver every week to have everyone looking at the same numbers. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I love your point about the the source of truth discrepancy, and it's like mm-hmm. something that CDPs try try to solve, right? But I'm curious, like, does I think you mentioned Sigma as the the dashboard tool? Like, does it does it sit on top of the warehouse? Like, does the data team use the warehouse as the source of truth, or is it kind of ingesting data from like your Salesforce and, and your HubSpot and, and your paid tools? Like, uh, do you know how <laughs> That's it's a good set question? Up? Yeah. So it's digesting from our data warehouse, which we don't touch as a marketing team. Um, But it's, it's a, from my understanding, my very uh, thin understanding, it's better than ingesting from all different sources and then trying to translate that. So it all goes through the data warehouse first. Yeah. hundred percent. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Phil Phil and I have a past life here. (laughs) An extensive extensive past life. You're describing some things that I've, uh, I've felt very, very many times in my career. Um, This has been an awesome interview. Uh, love the insights and everything that you're you're sharing with us. And I think the listeners have like a, almost like a master class of demand gen and some of the cool stuff that you can do when you really know your your brand, your ICP, and and uh, your positioning. One question we ask all of our guests is, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? And like you've got a ton going on. You're a team lead at one of the hottest uh, startups in Canada. You're a podcaster, a newsletter writer, a home chef, a local brewery expert, an amateur gardener a dog mom of one. So how do you find balance between all of these things and still and still be happy and successful? I feel like balance is one of those things that's always changing. Um, but honestly, this is going to sound so weird, but having a dog really helps me stick to a schedule in a way mm. that I 
wouldn't have thought in the past. But even, I mean, you guys know you're near Ottawa, so winter is horrible. But <laughs> even in the winter, I have to go for a walk before and after work, yeah. no matter what mm-hmm. the weather. And I think especially being a remote worker where Chili Piper is fully distributed. So I have people all, all over the world that I work with. And literally any time of day, I can open Slack and someone's online asking for an update on something or asking for help on something. So having that schedule where I walk an hour before work, an hour after without my phone, most times, um, that personally helps me so much because I start and end the day just as as screen-free as I can. Sometimes, obviously, things happen and I have to be on my phone, but that's a huge one. And then time blocking is my other one. If you look at my calendar, it looks like I'm scheduled like every minute of the day. (laughs) It's really just saying like, I need to do this in this hour. And it helps for things like obviously booking the podcast. And when I have guests on my own, it helps to have like really clear windows of when I'm open. Um, But I also put in little things like buffers between meetings because I know I need like five minutes to get a coffee or like take a break, Mm -hmm. like just a breather. Um, And yeah, I know that sounds kind of simple, but I think a lot of people just let their, they come on to Slack and let that schedule their day for them. But I Mm -hmm. try to plan my day out as far in advance as I can. Yeah, it's so easy to like start your day by opening your phone and and looking at Slack and just like getting sucked into like all the questions and like oh I'll mm-hmm. just like answer a couple of questions and then like I'll I'll start breakfast or or I'll, I'll walk my dog. <laughs> but yeah, my dog is five years old now, so she is like a bit more flexible and like when mm. during the day can I give her that walk? But yeah, she still <laughs> still needs. The Mine walk. is not. <laughs> He's crazy <laughs> in the morning. He needs to go outside. Um. <laughs> But yeah, and I think especially as marketers, you end up being like an order taker really quickly yeah. if that if you're so reactive. So I really try to avoid that when I can. Yeah, love it. Great advice. Tara, this has been super fun. Uh, anything you want to plug for the audience that uh, I, I know like you already dropped a couple of exciting things uh, that you're doing uh, on, on the top of the funnel side, but anything else you want to plug for the audience? Yeah. So if you're a fan of marketing podcasts, especially B2B marketing podcasts, I'd love if you checked out my podcast, Demand Gen Chat. This season will be wrapped up now. So you'll have 12 episodes to check out of the most recent season. And I'd love any feedback. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah. Been a big fan myself, uh, checking it out recently and, uh, yeah, looking forward to see what you guys are cooking up for the next season. But yeah, thanks so much for your time, Tara. This is super fun. Thanks so much for having me guys.